0: Chapter 7 of Dead Love Has Chains by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Having resolved upon the thing that she must do, Lady Mary was able to compose her spirits, and to appear in the drawing room at a quarter past eight with the usual placid and reposeful air. She dined at half past eight in summer, so as to allow Conrad one more half hour of sunshine and open air or, perhaps, a rubber in the card-room at Arthur's. Daisy was always dressed early, and she liked to amuse herself at the piano till Lady Mary came down. It was her idle half-hour after the last letter had been written, Daisy's chief duties lying in the epistolary line. There was daylight still at half-past eight, and only the reading lamps on the tables had been lighted, amber-shaded lamps that made for prettiness in the large, lofty rooms with their gilded Louisais furniture and turquoise blue hangings. There were some fine pictures of the decorative order, a Leighton, a Pointer, a Frank Dixie, two classical subjects by Albert Moore, a dog and a girl by Briton Riviere, and an Alma Tadema that sparkled like a gem. Pictures chosen years before, when Mr. Harling refurnished his father's house for his young wife. The room had a large splendor utterly unlike the petite maîtresse air that Lady Mary had objected to in the Chapel Street drawing-room. There were books on all the tables, and there was Lady Mary's embroidery frame under a silken cover, but the costly frivolities that crowd modern tables and make them useless as tables were not there. The only ornaments were a few pieces of sevres in a pair of old French boule and ormolu cabinets. If punctuality is the politeness of princes, it is also the homage of sons, and Conrad's usual way was to be in the drawing-room at least ten minutes before dinner was announced. It was the moment in which he told his mother the news of the day, who was alive and who was dead among illustrious invalids, who was in and who was out in the by-election, what horse had won or which side was beaten at Lord's. Although these latter results neither troubled nor excited her, she liked to hear of them from him, and would even affect an interest in racing and cricket. This evening he only appeared two minutes before the butler, bright-eyed and flushed, fastening the last button of his waistcoat as he came into the room, "'Why weren't you in the park this evening, ma'am?' he asked gaily. "'I looked for your Victoria in the usual spot, "'and ever so many people asked me why you weren't there. "'The finest afternoon this summer. "'I thought you were going to Windsor on your motor, "'as you arranged with Captain Selkirk on Wednesday. "'I let Selkirk go alone with his wife. "'They were only married in February, "'and they would rather have a long tête-à-tête than my company.' "'And were you all the afternoon in the park?' Daisy asked. I was there in the golden hour when the river of life is at the flood, when the bobbies are clearing the road for the queen, and when there's not a chair to be had for love or money. He gave her his arm, and they went downstairs, Lady Mary following in a stately solitude. Even in that one flight of stairs she had time to ask herself why she had ever been so demented as to object to Daisy as a wife for her son, why she had not encouraged his liking for the poor cousin.' and done all in her power to keep him in the country, where Daisy was a bright particular star among the rather plain daughters of the squires and squireens, and of the one great nobleman whose four overgrown girls nobody had been induced to bid for. How well adapted they were for each other! Daisy, just tall enough for good style, her neat shining head a little above Conrad's shoulder, not insolently overtopping him. Everything about Daisy was satisfactory. Her manners, her clothes, the songs she sang, her way of thinking, everything. Indeed, it was only natural that Lady Mary should approve of a girl who was the work of her own hands. All the refinements of Daisy's education, all the things that had formed her taste and improved her mind-travel, books, nice people-had come to her from Lady Mary. She had gone to Hertford Street a raw girl, with one shabby box, and a flavour of Bohemia in her manner, and she was now, in Mary Harling's opinion, a perfect specimen of gentle blood and gentle rearing. She was good style. Lady Mary had done for her what nature did for Wordsworth's Lucy. She had made her a lady of her own. And Conrad had been in a fair way to love this girl. He had been perhaps on the threshold of a grande passion for Daisy Meredith when his mother nipped the delicate flower in the bud and brought him to London to fall into the toils of Jane Brown. There was less talk than usual at dinner. Daisy was thoughtful even to sadness. Conrad played the agreeable rattle while the fish was being eaten and fell into preoccupied silence during the rest of the meal. But not till he had questioned his mother anxiously about her health. "'I can't understand your staying at home in such delicious weather, ma'am, unless you were feeling not quite up to the mark. A chill, a headache, or something?' "'No, I was quite well.' BUT ONE MAY TIRE EVEN OF THE PARK. IT'S RATHER LIKE A SUPERIOR KIND OF TREADMILL, COMPARED WITH A RUSH ON A MOTOR, SAID DAISY. NEVER MIND, DAISY, YOU SHALL HAVE A MOTOR RUSH BEFORE LONG. WE'LL MAKE UP A COZY LITTLE PARTY AND GO TO HENLEY TO TEA. THE SELKIRKS, AND YOU, AND PERHAPS SIR MICHAEL AND MISS THELLISTON. AND MY MOTHER MIGHT RUN DOWN BY RAIL AND MEET US. WOULDN'T THAT BE RATHER JOLLY? Daisy, in a voice of inexpressible sadness, replied that it would be too delightful for words. The butler handed wines, of which one glass was taken by Conrad, and fruit which nobody could look at. "'I thought they'd never go,' said Conrad, when the second pair of black silk stockings had vanished behind the noiselessly closed door, then turning to his mother eagerly. "'Well, you saw them both, ma'am. You went early like a brick and found them at home. Come now, what do you think of them?' How about first impressions? His manner was gay, but Daisy could see that he was nervous, apprehensive of he knew not what, eager, impatient. I think Lady Thelliston is a very meretricious person. Patronizes the beauty doctors, supplements nature with art. Well, she must have been remarkably handsome dans le temps, so there's some excuse. There is no excuse for a lady rouging her cheeks like a person in the Burlington Arcade. THIS, FOR LADY MARY, WAS EQUIVALENT TO A TORRENT OF BAD LANGUAGE FROM ANOTHER WOMAN. CONRAD LOOKED SURPRISED, AND THEN LAUGHED. OH, MY DEAR MOTHER, HOW OLD-FASHIONED YOU ARE, ROUGING HER CHEEKS, AS IF MODERN ART STOPPED AT SUCH PRIMITIVE MEASURES. DO YOU THINK WHEN MIDDLE-AGE COMES UPON AN ATTRACTIVE WOMAN SHE HAS ONLY TO BUY HERSELF A POT OF ROUGE AND A HAIR'S FOOT? She must have beauty specialists, massage, electricity, and give her complexion at least two hours a day of serious toil. It's a mercy if she doesn't resort to surgery and have her face flayed and get yourself a new complexion. At least that's what my partners tell me about their aunts. But let us pass Lady Thallison and tell me what you think of her stepdaughter. I saw her only a few minutes. She is very handsome, I have no doubt. You speak with such an uncertain tone. But your own eyes beheld her. You must have seen that she is lovely. Did you ask them to lunch? Or to dinner? They go out a great deal. But I hope they could give you a day. A verbal invitation in a ten minutes call? My dear Conrad, that's hardly my way of inviting people. You do not seem to have been very effusive. I did what you wished me to do. You called upon them, like the vicar's wife on a new parishioner. "'but I want you to make them your friends, "'to bring them here. "'I want Daisy to be kind to Irene, "'who is a stranger in London. "'She won't be long a stranger "'if everybody is raving about her like you,' "'said Daisy. "'When can you ask them to dinner, Mother? "'Get them to name an early date. "'It can fit in with one of your innumerable dinners. "'The season is half over, "'so there is no time to lose. "'Have you seen Sir Michael Thalliston?' "'Not yet. "'He doesn't show up at dances.' I shall meet him in the road to-morrow morning. He's all right, a hero, a diplomat, a KCB. Write one of your little dainty notes to-night, ma'am, so that Lady Thelliston may get it at breakfast to-morrow. There was no help for Lady Mary. Conrad fidgeted about the drawing-room till he had her seated at her Davenport, writing the invitation. I am giving her a choice of two days next week and three days the week after. Thank you, ma'am. I think she'll choose the earliest. "'even if she throws over something good. "'She wants to have you for a friend.' "'I don't think we can have an idea in common,' said Lady Mary. "'Oh, but you can tell her about people, "'teach her how to steer her bark. "'A newcomer, an Anglo-Indian, "'what a privilege for such an one to know Lady Mary Harling!' "'His tone was a caress. "'He hung over his mother's chair, "'delighted at seeing the letter addressed and sealed. "'He rang for the servant to get it posted.' At once, Thomas, and at the post-office. You are going to ride with them tomorrow morning? asked Lady Mary. Tomorrow and always till they give me the cold shoulder. The general rides every day. It was only a chance that she was alone this morning. She rode on the north side of the park to avoid the crowd. And you were with her all the time? She would have found it difficult to shake me off. He was not ashamed of his infatuation. It was young love. Eager, headstrong, determined, Romeo's love for Juliet, after his heart had bled for Rosaline. A second love, ardent as the first, and perhaps no less fatal. To love like that, suddenly, unquestioning, was to strike the key note of a tragedy. Lady Mary was in a desperate pass. She could not openly oppose him by refusing to be friendly with these people— She must diplomatize, and still hope that the sudden fire would burn out quickly like a candle in a draft, wasting itself in a profligate flame. With her son she must diplomatize, but with the sin-stained girl who had bewitched him she could deal plainly and speak straight words. Her invitation was accepted promptly for one of the earlier days. With a sinking heart she made up her party. A literary man and a soldier, the soldier young and attractive, would make the seventh and eighth of a friendly little dinner. Conrad was glad that they would be so few, and his mother hoped that her nephew, who was in the Scots greys and a general favorite, might prove a counter-attraction for Miss Thelliston and perhaps develop that young lady's least winning characteristics. If, for instance, she were to show herself an incorrigible flirt, and so disgust Conrad in the dawn of love. Lady Mary's policy was Machiavellian and merciless. She felt that her cause was good, and fought without compunction. The dinner was bright and gay, and Lady Mary's maneuver was unsuccessful. Miss Thelliston's behavior was perfect. While she was amiable to both young men, she was familiar with neither, and she showed herself deeply interested in Daisy and in all womanly subjects— the pictures on the walls, the books on the tables, books fresh from the library— Memoirs, letters, travels, philosophy, books that indicate the superior mind. In her tour of the rooms with Daisy after dinner, she ignored only one somewhat conspicuous object, Lady Mary's embroidery frame, where a solitary poplar showed amid a desert of tissue paper. Sir Michael revealed himself to Lady Mary's anxious gaze as a person of sufficiently dignified aspect. He was considerably over six feet, very thin and very upright, a hard man, with narrow steel-gray eyes, iron-gray hair cropped close, and a heavy mustache and beetling brows that were almost black. Lady Mary suspected a cruel mouth under that drooping mustache. Had Miss Thelliston behaved badly, Lady Mary might have waited, still hoping that the danger would blow over, but seeing the girl's manners irreproachable, she felt that there was no time to be lost. Such a love affair was like a quicksand." and Conrad was sinking so fast that he would soon be submerged beyond the hope of rescue. Whatever her power might be, she must use it at once. She invited Irene to her sofa with a smile, when the girl had made the round of the pictures and had said all that could be said about them. Please sit by my side for a few minutes, Miss Thalliston. I want to ask you something. The delicate color on the girl's cheek faded ever so slightly, and her eyes grew grave. "'Oh, I hope you are not going to be serious,' she said in a very low voice. "'Pray let bygones be bygones.' "'I must be serious. I am not going to speak of the past, at least not more than is absolutely necessary. But I must speak to you about the future. Will you come to see me after your ride tomorrow morning, so that we may have half an hour's quiet talk together? Will you come to breakfast at half-past nine? "'No. I won't break bread with you if you are going to talk seriously.' I KNOW WHAT THAT MEANS. I WON'T SIT AT A TABLE WITH YOU AND MISS Meredith AND YOUR SON AND PRETEND TO BE HAPPY IF I HAVE THAT ON MY MIND. I'LL COME HERE AT ELEVEN O'CLOCK, IF YOU LIKE. I AM MY OWN MISTRESS TILL LUNCHEON. LADY THELLISTON REQUIRES THE MORNING FOR HER COMPLEXION. THEN I SHALL EXPECT YOU AT ELEVEN. BE ASSURED I AM NOT GOING TO SAY ANYTHING UNKIND. I HOPE NOT, LADY MARY. I HAVE HAD MY fill OF UNKINDNESS. She rose and went over to the piano where Daisy was going to sing with Captain Mansfeld, who was one of those young men who do things—singing, amateur acting, lightning portraits, tricks with billiard balls, and a little conjuring. Professor Wilmer, the man of letters, walked to the other end of the room in disgust. In a friendly party of eight he ought to have been the star, and a monologue from him should have been the only entertainment, and here were an amateur tenor and contralto blocking conversation and spoiling his evening. The little Dresden clock on the mantel-shelf in Lady Mary's morning-room struck eleven, with a tiny silvery chime. The clock on the stairs solemnly repeated the information, and a church clock ever so far away sent the same message through the summer air, while Lady Mary moved about the room restlessly, nervous and apprehensive. Would the girl keep her appointment? She had only three minutes' uncertainty before the butler announced Miss Thelliston. Irene was dressed simply and girlishly in a white frock and white hat with white gloves and sunshade. A small bunch of pink carnations at her waistband was the only touch of color. Her clothes would have been simple enough for a village in the heart of the country, but the general effect was distinguished, and her morning face was exquisite, her cheeks flushed with vivid rose, and her eyes brilliant as if with some great joy. It was not the countenance that Lady Mary expected to see— Here there was no touch of shame or of remorse, yet there was no defiance, only unmeasurable content. Would you sit here by the window? We can talk quite at our ease. Daisy Meredith has gone for a walk with the dogs. I want to talk to you seriously, straight from my heart to your heart. They were seated side by side on a large low sofa that filled Lady Mary's favorite bow window, a window commanding a peep into Park Lane and the trees in Hamilton Gardens. There was a silence of some moments, and then Mary Harling said gravely, "'I dare say you know that my son admires you, Miss Thelliston. "'Yes, I know as much as that. "'It is only natural that he should admire a very beautiful girl "'about whose antecedents he knows nothing. "'But I think your own good feeling, your own good taste, "'will induce you to do all in your power to discourage him.' "'But why, Lady Mary?' "'Need you ask me why?' HE IS MY SON, MY ONLY SON, DEARER TO ME THAN LIFE. CAN'T YOU UNDERSTAND THAT IT WOULD BREAK MY HEART IF HE WERE TO MARRY ANY WOMAN WHOSE GIRLHOOD THERE WAS A STAIN? NO, I CAN'T UNDERSTAND. HAVE YOU FORGOTTEN YOUR OWN WORDS THAT LAST NIGHT ON BOARD THE ELECTRA? SOME DAY, YOU SAID, A GOOD MAN MIGHT WANT ME FOR HIS WIFE, AND YOU URGED ME TO TELL HIM MY WRETCHED STORY, AND YOU TOLD ME THAT IF HE WAS INDEED MY TRUE LOVER HE WOULD FORGIVE ME and take me to his heart and cherish me for the rest of my days. That is what you told me, Lady Mary. So, now I suppose you wish me to tell your son the story of my life in Kashmir? No, no, I want you to act like a true and generous woman and to let my son go. His fancy has been caught by your beauty. There can be no depth or seriousness in his feeling for you. All you have to do is to let him see that you are not attracted to him, that he is nothing to you. It must be so easy for you to give up this one admirer, since you are lovely enough to have many suitors, men of high rank in the world, men who can give you a position that every other woman will envy. You are very kind to promise me such grand things, but I do not happen to care for them. Your son loves me with a most enchanting love, and I would rather be his wife than a duchess, if there were a duke in my horoscope. Oh, but you must not marry him, you must not!' I WON'T LIVE TO SEE YOU MARRIED TO MY SON, LADY MARY CRIED VEHEMENTLY, LOSING ALL SELF-CONTROL. WHAT WILL YOU DO TO PREVENT IT? EVERYTHING WAS SETTLED THIS MORNING, AND I AM ENGAGED TO YOUR SON. MY FATHER WROTE ALONE, FOR WITH THIS INTERVIEW HANGING OVER ME I DID NOT CARE FOR THE row. CONRAD JOINED MY FATHER THERE AND TOLD HIM THAT HE WANTED TO MARRY ME, AND MY FATHER BROUGHT HIM HOME TO BREAKFAST, AND AFTER BREAKFAST HE FOLLOWED ME TO THE DRAWING-ROOM. "'Oh, he is splendid, noble, generous, a king among men. "'I don't wonder you are proud of him. "'We were talking for a long time, heart to heart, "'and I promised to be his wife, "'and we were both as happy as mortal creatures can be. "'Are you going to try to part us? "'Will you break the oath you swore upon your crucifix? "'You, a good Christian, will you tell him my story?' "'No, I can do nothing.' It is you who must act. You have known him less than a month. You can't really love him. Juliet had not known Romeo half a dozen hours. Juliet! Juliet had not surrendered herself to a profligate, had not borne a profligate's child. Juliet was not a precocious sinner. I won't have you for my son's wife. Do you hear, Irene Thelliston? If I am tongue-tied, it is you who must disillusionize him.' "'You must do everything that tact and cleverness can do "'to cure him of his infatuation without breaking his heart. "'That is what you have to do. "'And I am to marry any man I can catch, "'the highest in the land, so long as I don't marry your son. "'You are not to marry my son. "'He has been deceived once, "'cruelly deceived by a girl he thought pure as snow. "'He has suffered. "'He shall not be deceived a second time.' I will do anything, anything to save him from you. Will you break your oath? I don't know. I might be justified even in doing that to save my son from dishonor. You think your secret is safely hidden, but I tell you no secret can be kept forever, least of all the secret of a woman's shame. Some witness will rise up against you. The servant who brought you from India, your child, or the people who have the care of your child. My child only lived a few hours. I had been too unhappy to bring a new life into the world. My maid is in Australia. She is an honorable woman after her lights, and she swore never to betray me. She will not break her oath. And your stepmother? Does not she know? No one knows but my father. That's why we hate each other. Horrible! Yes, it is horrible. I never look at him without shuddering at the thought of his contempt. IN THE MIDST OF NEW FRIENDS WHO ARE KIND ENOUGH TO MAKE MUCH OF ME, I LOOK ACROSS THE CROWD AND SEE HIS HARD FACE, THE FACE THAT HAS NEVER LOOKED AT ME KINDLY SINCE I SO SORELY WANTED A FATHER'S KINDNESS. HE, WHO HAS SUCH NEED OF PARDON FOR HIS SINS AGAINST MY MOTHER, CANNOT FORGIVE ME. I AM A WOMAN, AND THERE IS NO PARDON FOR A WOMAN'S SIN. YOUR STEPMOTHER SEEMS KIND TO YOU. YES, SHE IS KIND, AND I ACCEPT HER KINDNESS. There are compromises. I live under the same roof with her, though she helped to break my mother's heart. I don't mean that she was my father's mistress. I should draw the line at that. But I know that she flirted with him and kept him dangling about her when all his time and care ought to have been given to his dying wife. You must be very unhappy in such a home. We don't say too much about home. My father and his wife have made me understand that I am expected to marry before the end of the season. She buys me nice clothes, and he has given me her horse for the park. The clothes and the horse are to get me a husband. Even that slip of a house is more than my father can comfortably afford. He would be better off in Ireland. I am to marry and to marry well. He is enchanted with your son's offer. Your father is a man of the world. Does he think your cashmere escapade will never come to light?' Lady Mary's irritation had got the better of her womanly feeling, for the moment she was merciless. Yes, I have no doubt my father believes, as I do, that fate will not be so cruel as to hurt me any more. And your lover, the wretch who seduced and deserted you, is he dead? I have never heard of his death. Suppose you were to meet him by and by, as the wife of a man of position. Don't you think that would be rather awkward for you and for your husband— I think not. He showed himself a man of the world when he went away and made no sign. If we were to meet, he would show himself a man of the world again. I have no fear that he would betray me. Or that he would make love to you. And how about your own feelings? You must have loved him desperately when when you let him spoil your life. You have no right to talk to me like that, cried the girl with sudden vehemence. What do you know of such tragedies? "'You with your smooth existence, "'hedged round with conventionalities "'guarded on every side, "'you who could hardly have gone wrong "'if you had been the most vicious of women. "'What do you know about me? "'When I let him spoil my life, you say? "'When I let him? "'I was seventeen, "'and I had been educated by the proper people "'who never hint that life has dangers. "'When I let him? "'I was in the power of a profligate, "'intoxicated with sweet words, "'with plattered vanity.' "'told for the first time that I was beautiful "'and that I was beloved. "'What did I know of love but the sweetness of it? "'The love I had read about in Romeo and Juliet, "'the love he read of, "'the love of Hade for Juan. "'Oh, so overpoweringly sweet in the years of ignorance. "'You don't know. "'You can never, never, never understand. "'Yes, I think I can. "'I am sorry for you. I blame your seducer and the woman who left you in his power, the wicked woman who had the fate of a girl in her keeping and took no care. I have always been sorry for you, but I will not let my son marry you. But you promised me a husband, some good man who would hear my confession and pity me and take me to his heart. What kind of a man was he to be? A village schoolmaster, perhaps, or a curate, a shopkeeper's son who had won a scholarship and got himself ordained. "'Someone second class. "'You shall not marry my son. "'How will you hinder me? "'By every means in my power, "'and you may be sure a mother's intelligence will find the way, "'though I may not see it now. "'You shall not marry him. "'I could tell you something about him "'that would scare you, perhaps, and make you glad to give him up. "'You would tell me that seven years of his young life "'were wasted in a madhouse. "'Do you think that would frighten me?' How did you know? He told me this morning, before he asked me to be his wife. Perhaps even you don't know how noble he is, how frank and chivalrous and true, a king among men. And can you think that I will give him up? I have suffered by a man's wickedness. I have drained the cup of sorrow and shame. I live with a father I hate and a stepmother I despise. And when a good man comes to me, and offers me a love that leapt into life the night we met, strangers in one hour, lovers in the next. Do you think I am going to let my true love go? If you have any sense of honor, you cannot marry him. But I might marry the other man, the curate or the schoolmaster. Remember what you said to me? I had only to tell him my story. If the worst comes to the worst, I can tell Conrad. And you think he would forgive you? I am sure he would. I should make him very miserable. It would be a cruel thing to do. It would take the bloom off our love and our happiness. But he would not send me away. I have grown into his heart. He could not do without me. She had calmed herself after her burst of passion, and her face grew radiant as she spoke of her lover. She paused before the mantelpiece for a moment or two while she adjusted her hat and smiled at the brilliant reflection. He loves me, Lady Mary, and I can make him happy, she said. You had better be kind. Let the dead bury their dead. Just take time and think things over quietly. She moved towards the door while Lady Mary stood with an adamantine countenance and forgot even to ring the bell. She held out her hand at parting, but Lady Mary would not take it. Halfway downstairs she met Conrad, who caught her in his arms surprised and rapturous. My angel, you have been with my mother. You have told her. I was just going to her. How sweet of you. She ought to be delighted. She is hardly that, as yet. It is so sudden, so dreadfully quick, for a mother. But she will be pleased by and by, when she knows me better. I am going to make you happy, Conrad. Oh, so happy. She let her head sink upon his breast half swooning in the sudden reaction from the scene above stairs, and he smothered her face with kisses, and had no memory of a face almost as lovely that had nestled there and been kissed as fondly by a passionate lad of twenty eight years ago. When does the new love remember the old? They had the spacious landing all to themselves just long enough for this little love scene, in the shelter of tall palms and the cool light filtered through Venetian shutters. And then an electric bell rang sharply, The servants were on the alert in the hall below, and Conrad had to behave with circumspection as he escorted his sweetheart to the door, and went out with her. That she should walk alone to Chapel Street, that radiant creature whose dazzling beauty challenged every eye, would have been out of the question. He went with her, and they made a detour by Park Lane and Green Street, and they talked, as only newly plighted lovers can, of a future of ineffable bliss. End of Chapter 7